John chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Easter Sunday service. We're so glad to have you with us, and especially those of you who are here visiting as our guests. Thank you so much for joining us on this Lord's Day. And of course, we welcome all of you who are home watching in our live stream service. We hope and pray that today's service will be especially meaningful and encouraging as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And now, would you bow your heads and join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that your grace and your mercy would be upon us. Lord, as we have now come to this moment where we celebrate the glorious rising again of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the hope that comes through his triumph over sin and death, Father, we are ecstatic. We are filled with hope and joy. And Lord, we ask now that you would fill us once again with the hope that is contained in your word so that we would leave this place as changed people, as people who are resurrection Christians, people who have a vision, who have a mission that is forever changed in our lives, a life that is forever devoted to you. Father, we ask that you would help us to see the truths in which you will teach us on this day and that we would apply it all the days of our life so that by doing so, we will testify to your greatness, giving glory to you and bringing good into the world. Oh God, now would you hear us and receive us, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Excuse me. Well, happy Easter, everyone. Happy Easter. Here we are at it again, celebrating what is arguably the most important Christian holiday of the Christian calendar. And of course, that is Easter Sunday. It is the day where churches everywhere remember, rejoice, and revere the day in which the Lord Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave, rising again from the dead after being crucified on the cross, dead, on what is known as Good Friday. But you know, it also happens to be the day, according to most church growth experts, in which non-Christians, non-believers are most willing and most open to attending a Sunday service. And if you're here today, either in person or at home watching, and if that fits your description, let me just say welcome, 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 and thank you, thank you, thank you for accepting the invitation of a mutual friend, coworker, sibling who calls NCF their church home. But I want to do something a little bit different than what I typically do in an Easter sermon. You see, most Easter sermons, I want to say something about Jesus. 
But today, I want to use Easter as a way to say something about you, our non-believing guests. Now, you might be thinking as you hear that, excuse me, preacher, Easter says nothing about me. Thank you very much. Oh, but it does. You see, preachers everywhere will speak of the resurrection to spotlight something true about Jesus. Namely, he is who he claimed to be, the one and only true God, therefore someone to whom you should follow and worship. But today, I want to speak of the resurrection as a way to speak something that is undeniably true of you, my non-Christian, non-believing friend, that you nevertheless constantly deny. Now, I know you hear that, and either you could be intrigued or maybe even offended, but nevertheless, you might be asking this question. Preacher, what in the world are you talking about? What are you saying that the resurrection says is true of me, and yet you claim I constantly deny? Well, that's what today's sermon is all about. And so with that stage set, there are three things that I'd like to share with you, three things that the resurrection says of you that is undeniably true and something that I hope you will recognize as the truth. Three things. With regard to that, first, the resurrection says your disbelief in God is not rational, but judgmental. Number two, the resurrection says that you have a built-in system to know that God already exists. And finally, the resurrection says you are deeply love of God. The three things the resurrection says of you, dear friend, is that your disbelief in God is not rational, but judgmental. That you have a built-in system to know that God already exists, and it says that you are deeply loved by that God. Let's begin with the first point. The resurrection says your disbelief in God is not rational but judgmental. So our passage is part of a document known as the Gospel of John. And according to most Bible scholars, this document was written somewhere between the late 90s to early 100s AD, making this a very, very, very old document, which means the people to whom it was addressed to lived way before the advent of what we call the scientific revolution that happened somewhere around the 17th century. And because that is so, there was and continues to be a common stereotype that people today have regarding to the people who lived during the days of the Bible. And if I had to explain to you what this stereotype belief was, I can not do any better than the one that Pastor Tim Keller once wrote. Listen to what he says. Quote, it is said that people at the time, the days of the Bible, did not have our scientific knowledge about the world. They were credulous about magical and supernatural happenings. They could easily have fallen prey to reports of a risen Jesus because they believed that resurrection from the dead were possible. End quote. In other words, according to Keller and according to this stereotypical view, people who lived during the days of the Bible were so naive, they were so gullible that they were easily duped into believing supernatural claims, preposterous claims that modern people today would absolutely deny. And perhaps you share that stereotypical view as well. But if that is the case, I want to draw your attention to our passage yet again, starting in verse 24, we read, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. Interesting. Here is this man by the name of Thomas who speaks the way a modern atheist would speak with regard to the claim that Jesus rose again from the dead. What does he say? He says, unless I see Jesus' resurrected body with my own two eyes, unless I touch his said body with my own two hands, I will never believe. Think about that. Here is a man, an ancient man, who has no idea about the scientific method, 
who has no idea of the enlightenment, who has never studied chemistry, physics, or what have you, and yet his skepticism sounds eerily identical to the skepticism of a modern atheist and agnostic today. Which means, which means that maybe, just maybe, the skepticism of atheists and modern atheists, excuse me, agnostics today, maybe it has nothing to do with science. Maybe, just maybe, the skepticism of most atheists and agnostics today maybe has nothing to do with rationalization at all. Now, you hear that and you're thinking, okay, well, pastor, what else could this source of skepticism be? If it's not a rational reason, what other possible reason could people have as to why they don't believe? Well, we kind of get a hint of it in verse 24. Take a closer look at what Thomas says, and maybe we can find the answer to that question. What does it say? Verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So here's what's happening. Jesus shows up on Resurrected Sunday, on Easter Sunday, and appears to his disciples, except for one disciple. Because one particular disciple is noticeably, conspicuously missing. It's none other than Thomas himself. That's right. The person talking like a skeptic is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. You see? And the question is, why is Tom, who is a disciple, speaking this way? And more importantly, why is he not around when Jesus would be around? Now, some people might argue that maybe this Thomas fellow, maybe he's one of those half-hearted believers. Maybe he's one of those people who's not fully committed to the ways of Christianity. Maybe he has other priorities, other interests, and as a result, he wasn't around when the other disciples would normally be, okay? Now, the problem with that hypothesis is that if you read other descriptions of Thomas in the Gospel of John, it goes completely out the window because in one particular instance where Jesus' ministry was being threatened and therefore his life was threatened along with his other disciples, the temptation was for the disciples was to abandon Jesus. But Thomas was the only one in that intense moment said these words recorded in John eleven seventeen. 17. Excuse me, 16. He says this, let's go to... And die with Jesus. These are not the words of a half-hearted believer. These are not the words of someone who has other priorities except Jesus. No, this is a person who is highly committed to Jesus to the point of being willing to die with him. Which leads us back to the question at hand. Where are you at, Thomas? How come you weren't around when Jesus first showed up when the other disciples were? Why were you missing in that critical moment? Well, I like the explanation given by Bible scholar Warren Wiersbe. Listen to what he says. Quote, why was Thomas not with the other disciples when they met on the evening of the resurrection day? Was he so disappointed by the death of Jesus that he did not want to be with his friends? John 14.5 reveals that there seems to have been a pessimistic outlook in Thomas. We call him doubting Thomas, but Jesus never rebuked him for his doubts. He rebuked him for his unbelief. Doubt is often an intellectual problem. We want to believe. But the faith is overwhelmed by problems and questions. Unbelief is a moral problem. We simply will not believe. What was it that Thomas would not believe? The reports of the other Christians that Jesus Christ was alive. We must fault Thomas for laying down conditions for the Lord to meet. End quote. It turns out Thomas is the type of person that if things don't go his way, and more importantly, if certain people don't meet his expectation, including God, 
he gets massively disappointed to the point where he gets disgruntled, okay? And as a result of his disgruntledness, it causes certain things like his skepticism. Here we see in our passage that Thomas was very disappointed in Jesus, namely that he died and stayed dead, right? And as a result, he got so disgruntled that he felt so justified in being skeptical about Jesus, namely that he is able to rise again from the dead. And as we just read in his own words, he says that the only reason I would ever get let go of my disgruntledness to where I would ever consider believing in Jesus is if Jesus meets my conditions, my expectations to my personal satisfaction. And friends, that right there, according to the Bible, is why so many atheists, so many agnostics are skeptical today. And maybe if you're here visiting us, maybe that's why you're skeptical, right? Maybe that's why you don't believe. Maybe something happened in your life or in the life of someone you love where you felt very disappointed in God, and as a result, it created a disgruntledness in you that gave birth to a disbelief in the idea, in the hope that there is indeed a God. And if that is you, again, we say, welcome. We are so glad that you're here, and we respect the fact that you are skeptical towards our God. But we would also ask that you would be respectfully considerate to the possibility that maybe, your, just maybe, your disbelief, your skepticism, is because of what the resurrection says it is. It has nothing to do with rationalism, has nothing to do with science, it has everything to do with the fact that you are disgruntled, okay? <clears throat> to where you feel entitled to be above God as his judge, to where he is obligated to meet your expectations, your demands, your conditions, so that it would be met to your personal satisfaction before you would ever consider that maybe he is indeed God. Now, I know you can hear that and you can push back and say something to the effect of, okay, preacher, maybe you're right. Maybe the reason why I don't believe in your God is not because of any rationalism, but pure judgmentalism. I judge God, and I am waiting for him to show me that he is worthy of being worshipped. What's wrong with that? What's bad about that? Why can't I be in that position of judgment over God to where he has to meet the burden of proof to my satisfaction? Why can't I have that posture over him? That's a great series of questions. Let me see if I can answer it by going to my next point. The resurrection says you have a built-in system to know that God already exists. Read again with me, verse 24 down to the middle of 26. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And the listener says, and Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them? This is kind of odd. Here is Thomas, who is a disgruntled skeptic, and at this point in the story, he does not believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, which technically means he's not a Christian, because in order to be a Christian, you have to believe, you have to have the conviction that Jesus rose again from the dead. So, from a spiritual category, Thomas is an unbeliever, and yet, Thomas is hanging out with believers, He's going to places where they are gathering. And if you think about that, that is so inconsistent to a person who disbelieves. That is so inconsistent to a person who is skeptical about spiritual things. 
to where you can't help but to wonder, why is Thomas always hanging out? Why is he going to places where belief in God is so pervasive? And it's here you come to find the second thing that the resurrection says of you. You see, Thomas's behavior displays this universal phenomenon of this unrelenting, unavoidable, and therefore undeniable sense of God's existence, even though there are doubts that say otherwise. And this is something that even modern atheists have affirmed. Back in 2008, there was an atheist writer by the name of Julian Barnes who wrote a book called Nothing to be Afraid of. It was a New York Times bestseller. And the opening line of his first chapter says this, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Kind of beautiful, isn't it? In fact, it sounds so beautiful that you might be skeptical about this man's commitment to his atheism. Okay, fair enough. How about we talk more about a more staunch atheist? How about Professor Bart Ehrman, a New Testament scholar who is an atheist who teaches at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, my alma mater, right? In fact, I had Professor Ehrman as my teacher. And as long as I've known him, he's always called himself a committed, staunch atheist, at least until recently. Because last year on his blog, he wrote these words. It's kind of long, but I think it's so good to hear. He said this, quote, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I had a revelatory moment last week <coughs> that I think may have changed my view about God for a very long time, or at least about the existence of superior beings far beyond what we can imagine. Over the past 15 years or so, I've been calling myself an atheist, but my revelatory moment has softened my view. Here's why. I have a meditation practice, and over the past year or so, I spent a lot of time meditating on consciousness, especially the marvel that I am a self-conscious being. So here is my duh moment. A rock has no way of recognizing that a dandelion exists. A dandelion has no way of recognizing that a panther exists. Now it gets a bit tricky. A panther has no way of recognizing that a superior intelligence exists. Yes, a panther does recognize in some instinctual sense that there are things out there. But it has no way of realizing that there are people who can engineer skyscrapers or split atoms or reconstruct the history of Rome. It simply is not in its purview. They can't even conceptualize their existence. Then what in the blazes should make me think that I could possibly know if there was a higher order above me, superior to me in ways that I simply can't imagine? There is no way I could ever know. I guess I'm still an agnostic and an atheist, but I think it makes much, much better to stress that I simply don't know part and stop implying that I firmly believe one thing or another. The possibility that there really might be orders of existence higher than I can imagine strikes me just now as completely plausible. Why not? If superior forms of intelligence and will do exist, I would literally have no way of knowing. And how many different forms slash levels could there be? God knows, so to speak. End quote. Here is a man. Clearly committed to an atheistic worldview, he still labels himself as an atheist, as an agnostic, and yet he cannot deny that there's something out there that for decades he has denied with his atheism. And the question is, how do you explain this? How do you explain this haunting sense of something beyond what atheism says is not there? We'll read again this passage, starting in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Okay, come on back. So here 
Jesus, eight days later, after his first appearance, appears again to his disciples. But the difference is Thomas is now there. And what does Jesus do? He immediately goes up to Thomas. And what does he tell him to do? Touch my body, Thomas. Specifically, touch the scars that are on my body. Now, we don't know for sure whether or not Thomas actually went ahead and touched Jesus' scars. But one thing we do know is that this was the moment that Thomas started believing, evidenced by his profession of faith. What did he say? My Lord and my God, verse 28. But then listen to how Jesus responds to Thomas's profession. Verse 29, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, when you first read this statement of Christ, you can't help but to think that Jesus is rebuking Thomas, criticizing him, almost to the extent of Jesus sounding like the following, yo, Thomas, you telling me now after seeing me, you believe? Well, I'm telling you now, it's possible to believe without seeing. And those people who do are going to be way more blessed than you, Tom. You missed out. Sucks to be you. That's how many people think Jesus is speaking. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is actually correcting Thomas's thinking in terms of why he thinks he now believes. Okay? And if I had to rephrase what Jesus is essentially saying, it would go like this. Thomas. You believe that the reason why you believe in me now is because you've seen me. Wrong. Here's the truth of the matter, Thomas. People are blessed to believe because they have not seen, and that's also true of you. See, Jesus is trying to tell Thomas that the reason why he believes and the reason why anyone else believes has nothing to do with external evidence, but Rather, something internal within Thomas, within you, within me. Let me prove it to you. Read again what he says in verse 27, but pay attention to how he ends verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. And then listen, do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What kind of statement is that? It's a command, right? Jesus is commanding Thomas to believe. He's not pleading with Thomas to believe. He's not trying to persuade Thomas to believe. He's not even debating Thomas to believe. He just says, Thomas, knock it off. Just believe. He gives a command. Now, by Jesus giving this command to Thomas assumes something about Thomas, right? And what is that assumption? It's the assumption that there's something inside Thomas, something internal built into him to where he would inherently recognize that he is to obey God, right? And because this story is written in such a way to where the reader would identify with Thomas, to where what's true of Thomas would be true of the reader, us, that means you and I. We also have something built inside all of us. Something built into where we inherently recognize that we are to obey God, even if in our consciousness we think, We don't have the faith to believe even in the existence of God. Consider these words from theologian Hermit Bobbick as he explains what I'm speaking of. Quote, the bond between God and man has not, despite sin, been entirely severed. God does not leave man to himself, and man cannot get away from God. Instead, he remains lying within the pale of God's revelation and under the bonds of his law. God continues to speak to man in nature and history, in reason and conscience, in blessings and judgments, in the leading of life and the experiences of the soul. By means of this rich and powerful speech, God maintains in man the consciousness of his responsibility. It is not an external duress, 
but an internal moral obligation which unites man to God and his revelation, end quote. In other words, there is something built inside every human being that recognizes an intrinsic responsibility to obey God. And because that is true, that also means there is a built-in intrinsic awareness of God's existence. But if you, because if you have this awareness that you are to obey God, it assumes a God that you are to obey, right? This is why atheists like Bart Ehrman, atheists like Julian Barnes, they can never be free from this haunting sense that there is a God because in their heart of hearts, they know God is there. And not only is God is there, but he is a God, according to our passage, that we are to obey, which is another way of saying we are to submit to his authority. And when you realize that, then you realize that no matter how disgruntled you are, thereby making you feel no matter how justified you think you are, you can never be in authority over God. You can never be a judge over God and say, Lord, until you first meet my expectations, until you first meet my conditions, until you personally satisfy my demands, I will not believe in you. That's absurd. Because that would mean that God can no longer be God from the get-go in your life. He cannot be an authority over you. Not only is that wrong, but it's unnecessary because you instinctively know there is a God, evidenced by the fact of your awareness to obey him. Now, when all of this sinks in, and I know this is deep, but sometimes deep things give simple conclusions. And you know what conclusion we get from all of this? It's simply this. Disbelief in God which includes disbelief in the resurrection, is a matter of disobedience. Let me say that again. Disbelief in God, which includes the disbelief in the resurrection, it's a matter of disobedience. It's not a matter of ignorance. It's not a matter of healthy, objective skepticism. It's a matter of disobedience, which means that if you want to overcome a disbelief in God, you simply have to be willing to obey the God that you know already exists but the question is how do you do that well let's go to the final point for the answer the resurrection says you are deeply loved by god read again verse 27 then he said to thomas put your finger here and see my hands put out your hand and place it in my side do not disbelieve but believe now as i said earlier we don't know for sure whether or not thomas actually went ahead and touched the scars of jesus okay one thing we do know None of us in here will ever be given this opportunity that Thomas had. But that doesn't mean that we cannot do what Jesus is asking Thomas to do. What's that? Yeah. Think about it. What is the point of Jesus telling Thomas to touch his scars? Is it simply just to touch his scars? You know, hey, check it out. Touch the whole, right? No. Jesus wants Thomas to touch his scars so Thomas will be reminded of what caused those scars in the first place, the cross, right? Specifically, he wants Thomas to know that Jesus died on the cross. Why? So Thomas could do what you and I are all capable of doing in this room, remembering why Jesus died for us, which is another way of saying remembering the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says God 
is very disappointed in us. God has a lot against us. You know why? Because we have not met his expectations. We have not met the conditions to where he is so disgruntled. He has every right to punish us for that. Instead of giving us what he would have been warranted to do if we lived an obedient life, a life of blessing, a life of goodness. In other words, you and I are so selfish, we're so hypocritical, we're so inconsistent, we're so unfaithful, we're so perverted, we're so wicked, we're such sinners, that God has every right to judge us with severe judgmentalism. But the gospel goes on to say that God chose not to do that. Instead, he chose to come into the world as Jesus Christ and suffer that judgment himself in our place by dying on the cross as our substitute Savior. Why? Simply because he loves you. He loves you so much in a way that he's willing to treat you the way that you don't treat him. What do I mean by that? Remember what I said in my first point? Why are people not believing in God today? Why are they so skeptical? Because they're disgruntled right? They have this perception that God did or did not do something that led to disappointment, that led to disgruntledness, and hence disbelief, kind of like a way an elderly child who has a massive falling out with his dad and says in the heat of his anger, we're done. As far as I'm concerned, you don't exist in my life, right? But here's the truth of the matter. If you consider <clears throat> your, all of your perceived disgruntledness towards God, and you compare it with the real disgruntledness people have towards you, I think if you were brutally honest, if you really were objective, you would recognize that the things that people have against you are far greater than whatever perceived sense of disgruntledness you have towards God. Think about it. You know it's true. Maybe you don't want to ever admit it, but you know it's true. You know we have all done things, especially to people who love us dearly, that has caused us to look at ourselves and feel like we just can't stand ourselves. Sometimes more than the people we hurt can't stand us. And in that condition, in that moment, to have anyone, but especially God, come at you with kindness, with mercy, with the promise of forgiveness, with the hope that you can change for the better, that my friends, is more miraculous than the idea that there is a God. That is more miraculous than the idea that that God could be a man, die, and rise again three days later. That is how different our God is to us than we are to him. You see? Where he is willing to do for us what we are never willing to do for him. Do you guys get that? Do you guys see how God loves us with a love that is downright miraculous. When you do, if you do, you find in yourself a willingness to actually recognize who he is in your life. He is the person of authority. He is the person that you are to obey. And it begins with you recognizing him for who he truly is. My Lord, my God, your Lord, your God. Friends, Here is the question. Have you received that love? Have you accepted that love? A love that is truly majestic, merciful, miraculous? Because you don't need an argument for the existence of God. You just need to have the acceptance of the God 
you already know your call to obey the God who has loved you with such miraculous love. My hope and prayer, dear friends, is that you will hear his voice and that you will obey his command and respond when he says, stop disbelieving and start believing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us, especially those who are here as our guests, those who are investigating the Christian faith, those who are not sure whether or not you are there. And I pray that these words, Holy Spirit, would really resonate because you are truly marinating it into their souls, into their minds. And Lord, that they would respond like our brother Thomas did, that he would see, that they would see what Thomas saw, the recognition of someone they already know, a God (coughs) who is there, a God who they are called to obey, a God that they are to claim as their Lord, as their God. Father, I pray that this day forward, faith would come alive for those who are here amongst us where faith is yet to respond. Lord, would you collect our composure, would you collect our willingness to embrace and to pursue our dear friends around us who have accepted faith or are ready to accept it. May we be by their side and ready to lead them to an established relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, may you do your work amongst us and may the people around us come to know you. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen.